to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. What more is there to write about the American Civil War? Well, there are always battles that haven't been covered in a while, or not as thoroughly as others. The Battle of Chickamauga, for instance, in September 1863. It's been due for a new treatment for some time, and author David Powell has risen to the challenge. He has just finished the third volume of a trilogy. The third volume titled The Chickamauga Campaign, Barren Victory, The Retreat into Chattanooga, The Confederate Pursuit, and the Aftermath of the Battle, September 21 to October 20, 1863. We'll find out how the battle ended and more when we talk to Dave Powell tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu.edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Coming to you tonight from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Annex at 205 Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina, not on the campus of East Carolina University, where I spend my days, uh, but, and thus not speaking for the university or anyone else, just myself, as our guest will also do. It is summer, classes are over at ECU, and it's uh, easier to spend time here at home than, than in the office all day and certainly on Wednesday evenings. It is a beautiful Wednesday evening. Normally at this time in the show I would fill you in on the local sports that you are all anxious to hear about, the most coveted trophy in sports, for example, the uh, uh Pitt Greenville Soccer Association Rec Tournament uh, Championship was awarded while I was away last week to my team, the Monstars. We won the tournament while I was elsewhere, surely a coincidence and not a sign that it's time for me to hang them up and let the younger players win. Uh, 
but I was away because last week was uh, uh, this hallowed ground, the tour that I've been mentioning to you for some weeks now uh, is over, and what a great time it was. I want to <clears throat> send greetings to all the uh, new friends I made on the trip, the Pomeroys, the Bowers, the Walshes, the Slaters, father and son, Dick Bennett, Whit Hall, Diana McMillan, the special recognition to uh, some Civil War talk radio listeners who came along, uh, Reed uh, Wilcox of Arizona State, who alerted us all on the trip to the existence of the westernmost engagement of the Civil War, the battle at uh, Picacho Peak. Although whether it was a battle or a bar fight was not entirely clear. We may have to do a show on that. Um, it was fascinating to learn about that. Uh, among other things I've learned since then, that, that Picacho means big peak, so it's the big peak peak. Uh, and according to Wikipedia, the annual reenactments of this engagement have now grown so large that many more participants tend to be involved in the reenactment than took part in the actual engagements. Uh, so expanding my knowledge, always learning about new, if uh, very tiny, battles. Uh, further recognition to another Civil War talk radio listener, uh, Malta Hoffman of Cologne, Germany, traveled to the United States to join us on the trip, and it was a good thing because it Manassas, we put him to work as the youngest uh, traveler to run ahead and scout the next ridge for the rest of us and find out if it was really the site of the railroad embankment where Stonewall Jackson concealed his troops during the Second Battle of Manassas, which it turned out to be. And we walked along it, had a marvelous exploratory walk, uh, finding uh, witness trees that had been there since 1862, seeing the whole battle from a new perspective. And this was an experience we repeated all week, getting new perspectives on the past at Gettysburg. A few of us went on a, used our free afternoon there to explore Culp's Hill, which was great until we got to the bottom and I uh, exercised leadership in directing us the wrong way on the Baltimore Pike so that we got about three quarters of the way to Baltimore on foot before realizing we were not going to meet the rest of our party. Uh, so everybody learned a valuable lesson about my sense of direction. In Gettysburg, we also went to the Shriver House Museum. Uh, it is something you don't want to miss. Next time you are in Gettysburg, it's easy to miss because uh, there are so many storefronts that are, are not necessarily great uh, things to visit. There are ghost tours and stuff. The Shriver House is the real thing. Uh, we'll have uh, one of the principles of that institution on the show in the fall uh, so you'll learn more about it but in the meantime if you're in Gettysburg be sure uh, not to, to miss that uh, attraction so many other interesting things uh, happened on this tour I ran into uh, a lot of personal connections in the Antietam Visitor Center uh, we ran into Mike Priest who has been on this show he's the author of Antietam the Soldiers Battle now he volunteers and he was Giving, uh, came out to ask us if we needed anything, and I saw his badge, and he saw my name badge, and we're like, Mike, Jerry, we, we've spoken for an hour on the show, but never met in person. Uh, at Fredericksburg, uh, we had a great talk from John Hennessy of the Park Service, another former show guest, uh, about the impact of the Civil War in Central Virginia. At the Gettysburg Visitor Center, I ran into Professor Joe Anderson of Mount Royal University in Calgary, Canada. Uh, again, one of those name tag things. You see somebody's uh, name and 
realize, hey, I've, I've read this guy's stuff. And after I talked with uh, him, we had a nice conversation. And after we had separated, one of the students he was leading on a tour came up to me uh, privately and, and told me what a great teacher Professor Anderson was. And also how he, the student, was getting a job in public history based on his major in business and minor in history. Uh, always good to hear about people finding a way into the field. Uh, likewise, at Appomattox, we had a, a wonderful presentation from a ranger whose name I unfortunately didn't get. Uh, but I did look up uh, East Carolina University grad Chris Bingham, who has been there as a seasonal employee for several years, and I found out he has just been promoted to full-time with the National Park Service. Uh, more good news on the public history front. It was just a great trip. Um, Hal Brooks, our driver, maneuvered the bus out of some excruciatingly tight spots where I had advised him to take it. Uh, Matt Brogge, our logistics uh, expert, made sure everything was seamless. And uh, Civil War talk radio listeners contributed further. Uh, Frank Beecham did his representation of a member of the 4th United States Regular Regiment when we were at uh, at, at Manassas. Uh, he, on his own, a volunteer appearance. Likewise, Dr. John Willen contacted me uh, via the show and did a uh, extremely informative I'm not going to say entertaining, maybe excruciating is a better word, uh, a presentation on Civil War medicine. Uh, it's a topic we all need to know about to understand what we're reading, but uh, man, I'm glad I wasn't there at the time. Uh, so many great things on the trip. Uh, the, uh, the It's interesting how many of the guests were sent on the trip by their partners or spouses, uh, as a gift, or uh, or sometimes the individual leaves home as a gift to the partner who gets to stay home alone for a week. Uh, and in that vein, I want to assure Mrs. Hoffman back in uh, Cologne, Germany, that her husband was a great asset for the trip. His enthusiasm and perceptive and thoughtful questions really uh, added to, to what all of us got out of it. So, uh, so thank you. That was a great gift to give him. And likewise to others on the trip who either gave their spouse the gift of a week alone while they came along. Then there were those who, who brought uh, their partners who came along and enjoyed a wonderful vacation, great scenery, great food. Uh, there are individuals, all kinds of people go on this. So whatever you're doing, the time has come to begin saving your money for next year's trip. Uh, look into... Uh, interest rates, consider a second mortgage, do whatever you need to do to find a way to come along next year on this hallowed ground. They offer the trip, uh, Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours does it several times a year. I only do one of them, so go on the one I'm on, and then you and I can uh, talk. We can discuss Civil War talk radio and uh, the people that we've we've read about on heard about through the show and, and so much more. It's don't forget to figure into your budget, however, books. Uh, everybody ended up buying more books than we could handle. I certainly did. Uh, bought more books, visited more sites. On the way home, stopped to visit more obscure sites on the way back just because I was so uh, excited about uh, connecting to the past in this, this meaningful way. Gained a new appreciation for Civil War Trails, uh, whose principal, uh, Drew Gruber, was just on the show a few weeks ago. Uh, seeing the many places that, that that organization has marked, 
I'm so fired up that today on the way to the grocery store, I stopped at our local marker, the Red Banks Primitive Baptist Church, and reread it just to just to keep the feeling going. So I'm still buzzing from the trip almost uh, well, half a week later. And uh, if you get a chance to go, but whether you go on the one I'm leading or, or one that anyone else is leading, it's really worth your time. Well, enough about that. We have more to talk about. You can learn about everything on Civil War Talk Radio from impedimentsofwar.org, where Mark Gaffney keeps us informed who's going to be on. Next week, it'll be Kevin McCarthy, composer of the Better Angels of Our Nature Jazz Project. Uh, You can go to brianmccarthyjazz.com and get a sense of what we'll be listening to and talking about. And then on the 14th of June, Timothy B. Smith, with his latest book, Grant Invades Tennessee, the 1862 Battles for Forts Henry and Donaldson, will wrap up our 2016-17 academic year season. We'll take some weeks off, get new shows lined up, and in the fall we'll be back with all kinds of interesting new people. So lots going on there. But tonight we talk about the Battle of Chickamauga with an old friend of the show. Uh, This, I discover, will be David A. Powell's fourth appearance on the show, uh, putting him up there, I think, with James McPherson, Harold Holzer, a few others. Uh, But when you write this many interesting books about Chickamauga, we just have to keep talking to him each time. So let's find out what we can learn new about the final phase, the, uh, the end of the Battle of Chickamauga, from the book The Chickamauga Campaign, Barren Victory, Retreat into Chattanooga, the Confederate Pursuit, and the Aftermath of the Battle. The author, Dave Powell, uh, hopefully is with us tonight. Dave, are you there? I'm here. Welcome back to the show. This, this uh, as I, I said a moment ago, I, this, I, I was surprised to see this was the fourth time that uh, you and I have talked on the show. Well, which, I'm flattered which, and honored. <laughs> it, it puts you up there with uh, the leaders. It's like on Saturday Night Live when you hosted the show five times you get to be in some special club uh we'll have to do something like that here well Well, so let me ask you um first about touring civil war sites which i know you do a lot of you've led tours to chickamauga every year Uh, do you get that same just buzzed up feeling where where it's hard to uh relax when you get back and and focus on day-to-day things i do uh I, a couple of times a year, I get to slip away, and uh, either I lead tours, which uh, is always fun, or uh, I also will just do a somewhat more informal thing with a small group of friends, mm-hmm. uh, which are always uh, a blast. So, uh, yeah, you come home and you think about everything you've done. You, of course, organize all your new books, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, uh, and it gets me thinking, uh, you know, uh, here in Chicago, we don't have a lot of Civil War trail signs, though we have some connections. We have a few Civil War camps, um, you know, some obscure sites, some cemeteries and some monuments. So um, I try and, and take some time to go visit some of those places when I can, going home or to or from someplace. It's uh, it, it's easier certainly to stay in touch here in North Carolina, but but that feeling of of, of going back and thinking, oh, I've got to read this, I got to read that, I got to see how these all connect now, 
uh, it, it is very interesting. Well, with your book, um, this this is the third volume of the trilogy, long awaited by the fans, a sort of Game of Thrones kind of thing. Everybody wants to know when is it going to get the third book done. <laughs> um, and, and here it is. And I would like to start the way the way I suspect you start many books, uh, which is when you get a new Civil War book, you open it to the back first and uh, look at the bibliography. It, it, is that a fair assessment of how you'd approach uh, most yeah, books? Yeah, uh, um, these days I often go to the bibliography, uh, just uh, partly because I love uh, research for its own sake and I like to discover new archives or or collections that I haven't known about, and, and partly to see what the writer used, what the author relied on, you know, all of that. So in this book, you have an outstanding bibliography. Uh, you mentioned in your introduction, uh, you're, you're modeling it after that that the, uh, Richard Sowers did on Gettysburg. So what we'll do is take a short break, come back, and I want to ask you about the process of putting this together and and. Uh, what you're attempting to accomplish with it. So we'll talk about that in just a moment. Our guest, David A. Powell, the book, Baron Victory, The Retreat into Chattanooga, Confederate Pursuit and Aftermath of the Battle. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's p-r-o-k-o-p-o-w-i-c-z-g at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with David A. Powell, author of the third volume of the Chickamauga Campaign Trilogy, and is the author of the other two. The third one is called Barren Victory, the Retreat into Chattanooga, the Confederate Pursuit, and the Aftermath of the Battle, September 21 to October 20, 1863. Uh, this book, I should 
tell listeners, uh, has also just won the 22nd uh, Austin Civil War Roundtable's Daniel M. and Marilyn W. Laney Book Prize. Uh, so congratulations, Dave. That, that is uh, Thank very, you very impressive. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. The, uh, it. What I found really interesting about this book, it, it is the third volume of a trilogy, but it's that means it has uh, the end matter. It has the bibliography, and, and that's what I wanted to ask you about. How did how did you go about compiling something of, of this nature? Obviously, some of it comes up as you're going, but uh, uh, you talk I, about um, back modeling. I, go ahead. I started to collect uh, material for uh, really what amounted to a number study. Um, which took me to uh, some archives, some newspapers and things. Um, and after about a year or so, I realized that I had to have some way to organize all this material or I would simply forget where I got it. Um, and then uh, later on, a couple years later on, bear in mind that this project is about a 15-year project start to finish. So uh, uh, later on, when I decided when the opportunity came, really, to write a, a full-fledged monograph, uh, you know, a three-volume trilogy on the battle, um, then I also became interested in trying to include as much material as possible uh, just to uh, just to tell people how much stuff was out there and where they could find it. Because over the years, I've had a lot of people approach me and ask, do you have anything on the second Minnesota or... The you know the twenty fifth North Carolina and I say well sure uh, and that that leads to another feature of the bibliography that I decided to include though I I've never really seen anybody else do this um, but I I would like other authors to do it I don't know if I'm starting mm-hmm. a trend probably not but <laughs> no. um, I wanted to identify all the manuscript material all the collection material by regimental affiliation. So many people come to the Civil War through uh, tracking uh, an ancestor or uh, an interest in local history, trying to find out where their their family people fought or or where they served. And sometimes it's very difficult to look uh, in a book's index and, and then the bibliography and try and figure out what materials relate specifically to a unit they might be interested in. So I tried to add that feature into the bibliography to make it easier for, well, really for all those people who approached me and asked me about specific units over the years. I I think it's a great feature of this. Uh, Another feature is the separate listing of the material that you accessed online. And I find it interesting how much there is online, not not just in archives, but um, maybe auction houses or eBay where somebody will put up a letter and you can read the text of it there, but then it's gone. Yeah. Uh, did you find some of that? I did. Uh, I even cite uh, a couple of collections. And there I was always careful to uh, to print out or take a copy of whatever material was available. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I've either kept it for myself so that I, I can share it or, or use it as it comes up, but at least I have a copy of it, you know, eternally. Um, mm. And, and or yeah, we're in some cases where it was, was okay to do so, then I, I also shared it with the park. Because there is a... One of the things that I did in the bibliography 
is uh, right before publication, I went back through, I tried to go back through every link and find out which links were still active, which links had mm-hmm. kind of changed but would still take you there, and which links were dead. Right. And I did find a few that were dead. Um, and you never know. Uh, you know, there are there are ways to retrieve old stuff. Uh, uh, there's a there's a a website called the Wayback Machine via Internet right. Archive, which will actually take you to to material that they have saved copies of that, that even if it's no longer available uh, on the original link. Mm-hmm. But uh, but the uh, the internet is still in its formative stage in terms of research. So, uh, you know, we're not locking down all, all the material and all the resources uh, for permanence that w- the way we perhaps want them to. I mean, there's a great mountain of material out there on the Internet now. Um, you don't have to run to, uh, you know, Carlisle, the, 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 uh, the American... Uh, history and educa- or the Army History and Education Center at Carlisle, Pennsylvania, to get mm-hmm. your regimental uh, histories. So many of them are available online in various places. But still, um, I uh, I tried to uh, to retain as much of it as I could because I know that over time attrition takes out quite a few of those links. I thought it was a great idea you mentioned to uh, make copies and give them to the park. That that's an overlooked site for for the battles that the park service administers the battlefields that they administer are the uh in the visitor center along with the the introductory film and the exhibits in the bookstore there's usually a research area maybe a file cabinet or two or ten uh filled with these with clippings that people have brought them of of their own ancestor maybe a family letter and uh, in your case maybe uh, something you found online that's no longer out there and the park's the only place you can find this document. Uh, yes. Those are, I, I so it's really... Great, I'm sorry. I, I was going to no, say, I benefited great doing greatly from um, mm-hmm. a number of walk-in materials like that at the park. So one of the reasons for doing all this research, uh, you noted in your introduction was originally said a numbers study, trying to find the numbers of, of soldiers in each regiment uh, to help design a, a simulation game about the battle. The question of numbers is is an interesting one. Uh, there was an online discussion uh, about numbers at the Seven Days Battles on uh, another simulation game website or uh, discussion board about that brought up. Uh, the numbers in the seven days where, where those are being revised by historians. People are coming up with different thoughts. So the outsider might say, why does it matter how many guys were in Chickamauga? Uh, so I'll say, does it matter how many people were on each side in each regiment? Well, um, I think there are two answers to that. Uh, in broad terms, it only matters if there are sort of sweeping differences. If 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 you're off by 20,000 men, for instance, in an army, that's a pretty significant difference, and that can then change the interpretation. Um, if you're off by a few hundred men, I suspect that um, while it's fascinating to me, uh, it's not really uh, a radical change in interpretation. But uh, I'm sort of 
interested in strengths and losses in their own right. I, I think the veterans were, too. Look at uh, uh, Fox's uh, regimental losses uh, in the Civil War. Look at uh, Livermore's Numbers and Losses book from uh, the, the Civil War. In each case, those veterans were interested in assembling uh, actual historical statistics uh, Fox went further and created his famous 300 fighting regiments list of of the regiments who bore the largest loss in battle and and uh, uh, the greatest percentage of loss and things like that. Um, so I, I think it does matter. Um, it's of great interest to uh, to the veterans, to future generations, uh, to to at least some of us, mm-hmm. and. Uh, even if even if those numbers don't change materially change in interpretation, uh, then they're they're at least giving us a more detailed look at uh, combat intensity, for instance, uh, uh, percentage of losses can can give you a guideline into how severe uh, a situation a regiment faced or something like that. And then, of course, well, you, I mentioned the macro numbers. There are some battles still mm-hmm. where, where the strengths, the the seven day strengths, are being re- reinterpreted, and those are, those are macro numbers. Those are ten, fifteen, twenty thousand men. That's a significant difference. The uh, it, it, it as that can lead to to interpretive challenges if. Lee is greatly outnumbered by McClellan in the seven days. That's one thing, but if it turns out the numbers are the other way around and Lee had as many or more men, it it, it does change our view or, or could change our view of the relative generalship of the two. At Chickamauga, you, you point out an interesting statistic that uh, you, you found that many of Braxton Bragg's Confederate regiments had recovered most of their strength within a month after the battle. Uh, how did you find that, and, and what does that mean? Well, um, that came from a uh, an army return, uh, well, really an, uh, a corps return, an army corps return for Leonidas Polk's corps, uh, dated October 22, 1863, where they uh, provided uh, uh, several different sorts of numbers for the strength of each regiment. The the sort of aggregate present, which is a measure of everybody who you had to feed that day in a regiment, versus the uh, the effectives, which were which is usually a much lower number, and the number of men who were armed and equipped and ready to go into battle on any given day. Uh, but the uh, the strengths of the Confederate armies uh, has always been a, a a subject for debate. I mean, it really started the day after Appomattox, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, various interpretations. Uh, uh, the the North and South veterans, Jubal Early versus Grant. I mean, they, they argued about numbers almost from the very beginning of uh, of the post-war period, anyway. Um, and and so it was interesting to me to see. The state of Braxton Bragg, Bragg's army, a month after the Battle of Chickamauga, after the army had suffered these horrendous casualties, 18,454 uh, killed, wounded, and missing, 
out of approximately 65,000 engaged, um, mm. it suggested that uh, the Army of Tennessee was pretty resilient, uh, that, that returning wounded and returning sick uh, meant that Army strengths fluctuated up and down. They weren't... Uh, uh, attrition was not necessarily just a, a linear downward uh, slope. And so uh, even though that's a fragmentary piece of information, it's only for uh, 30 or 40 regiments in the uh, Confederate Army, uh, uh, one infantry corps basically. Um, mm-hmm. It was, to me, very interesting, and I thought I had to include it. Well, it does point out, as you said, you, you hear the army loses what sounds like a third of its men, and it should be crippled for the next six months or a year. But in fact, the, these numbers fluctuate up and down. Um, you also talked a moment ago about the different categories in terms of, of counting these numbers. How how uh, how did you deal with the fact that there are different categories and there are different sources that will report the same category but give different numbers? Uh, there are secondary sources that give all kinds of numbers. Uh, how how did you get as close as you could to what you thought was the real number for a given regiment? Um, well, I uh, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure I did, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> what I will I'll tell you is what I also say in the book is that I try mm-hmm. and present the different levels of numbers, the different categories of numbers. Um, and for the Confederates, um, I uh, well, for, for the Federals, it was relatively easy. The Federals had um, a couple of different numbers that they used on a regular basis, and also their records are much more complete. So every 10 days, each army, was uh, both North and South, was supposed to stop, take a, uh, a muster, basically, uh, muster for pay, and they would... They would list every man and every officer in each of these categories, um, and they ranged from uh, uh, something in the Federal Army that's often called present for duty equipped, which is what I referred to earlier as effective. In the Confederate Army, they tended to use this category called effectives, but the Confederates were um, uh, a, a little different about it. Uh, when they considered effectives, they often left out the officers. Uh, they, in, for effectives, they only counted uh, enlisted men in the ranks with uh, rifles or, or muskets. So uh, 10 to 12 to up to 15% of a regiment's strength going into battle would be in officers, and it seems... Uh, well, first of all, uh, there's the problem of apples-to-apples comparison. So if I count federal present-for-duty-equipped numbers and match those to this Confederate effective numbers, which omits the officers, then right away um, there's a, a downward bias on the Confederate numbers. So I had to compensate for that, and I compensated for that often the only way I could by estimation because... Um, uh, a lot of the Confederate records simply aren't as complete, especially for the Army of Tennessee. The uh, the Army of Northern Virginia, uh, which has been the, the the had the benefit of several number studies, like we've talked about seven days. There's mm-hmm. the uh, the Gettysburg uh, Regimental Losses book by B- Martin and Busey. 
Mm-hmm. Those numbers uh, are, are based often on the uh, surviving Army of Northern Virginia records. Well, the uh, Army of Tennessee records were supposed to be transferred first to Atlanta and then to uh, to Richmond and stored nice and neat, just like the Army of Northern Virginia records, but, but often they never got there. So the Confederate Army records for the Western armies are much more incomplete even than their armies in the East. So... Um, so there's a fair bit of what I think is reasoned extrapolation in in my research numbers, and in each case where uh, where you go through my uh, my appendices and look, I'll tell you whether my numbers were based on a hard source, where that hard source came from, a newspaper report two days after the battle, or a regimental history, or whether. I had to add in percentage for officers. I tried to be as transparent as possible. So, well, I think that's, that's one of the real strengths of the book is is a chance to sort of peek behind the curtain and see how uh, the historical research is is done for these numbers. We're going to take another short break. Come back and talk about the day after the Battle of Chickamauga and find out what the armies were doing on that day, the narrative portion of this book. The book is called Barren Victory, The Retreat into Chattanooga, The Confederate Pursuit in the Aftermath of the Battle, September 21 to October 20, 1863. The author is Dave Powell. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with David A. Powell, author of the Chickamauga Campaign Trilogy, 
The third volume, Barren Victory, The Retreat into Chattanooga, Confederate Pursuit in the Aftermath of the Battle, is our subject tonight. We've talked a little bit about the research behind it, especially the uh, numerical research into the, the size and losses of the armies. But uh, the first section of the book uh, concludes the narrative of events in the campaign. And Dave, I was really struck by how little the two armies knew the leaders of the two armies knew when they woke up the day after the, this enormous battle, uh, Rosecrans' Union Army is thrown back uh, into Chattanooga, or at least much of it is. Uh, George Thomas stays put, uh, the Rock of Chickamauga. But nobody seems to know where anybody is. Uh, Rosecrans doesn't necessarily know where Thomas, the rest of his army is. Bragg certainly doesn't know where the Confederate Army is. Uh, they, the, nobody had a clue. It's a very confused morning on September 21st, 1863. It definitely is. Um, part of the part of the the telling of the tale for uh, for that morning uh, was to t- explain to everyone how uh, the uh, both armies had to kind of get up and figure out what was going on, mm-hmm. and uh, the uh, the Confederates especially. I, I mean. The, the standard take on the Battle of Chickamauga has been that uh, Bragg won this great victory, and then he failed to pursue and, and threw away the victory. And mm-hmm. two months later at Chattanooga, U.S. Grant will invalidate anything that, that uh, Bragg could have hoped to achieve, and it all comes down to why didn't he pursue the day after the battle. Well, I've spent years going over the ground and, and talking to... Uh, some of uh, the other Chickamauga people were a, a small group. You can probably imagine there's not a lot of Chickamauga scholars out there. Uh, but uh, it, the uh, park historian Jim Ogden and um, mm-hmm. the uh, William Glenn Robertson, who's probably the dean of, of Chickamauga people, uh, both uh, urged me to think quite a bit about what happened, what specifically occurred on September 21st. And, and maybe explain, look at, uh, look at that pursuit in a different light. Um, and, uh, and, of course, my own work, uh, my first uh, work, the cavalry study called Failure in the Saddle, uh, which looked specifically at Confederate cavalry in the campaign, had come to same, some of those conclusions already. Uh, and so, so the process of... Uh, figuring out what happened and where the armies were because the, the the fighting on September 20th didn't conclude till after dark and then there was a fair amount of movement especially on the Union side in the dark um, so everybody had to sort of sort themselves out the next morning so the you say the standard view is Bragg should have pursued didn't do so uh, he's responsible for for uh letting the side down, but you argue that, that uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest, Confederate cavalry commander, had a lot to do with that. Uh, as I was reading your book, though, I was getting the sense that even a, a, a vigorous pursuit, such that you can, as much as you can do with an army that j- just lost almost 20,000 men, would still encounter the same problems any Civil War, war, Civil war army encounters when they run up against 
uh, a defensive position. That there's I I don't see a possibility as you describe it of any kind of pursuit really succeeding in destroying Rosecrans' army. Is is that your conclusion? Yes. Uh, there are two reasons for that. The first mm-hmm. reason is that um, George Thomas managed to extricate most of the Union army uh, and uh, and reorganize it through the night sufficiently uh, to defend the Rossville Gap. Uh, the Rossville Gap p- pierces Missionary Ridge. It's the direct road between the battlefield at Chickamauga and uh, the city of Chattanooga. Uh, and it's an extremely strong defensive position. Uh, anybody who's driven down U.S. 27 drives right through the Rossville Gap, and, and it rapidly becomes apparent how strong a position that is. The, uh, the other reason is often overlooked, but it's uh, a logistical problem. Uh, Braxton Bragg had, in, before the Battle of Chickamauga, Braxton Bragg had an army of about 40,000 people. He's reinforced to numbers that almost double his army, about 70,000 troops. But his problem is that uh, the rest of the Confederacy ships him uh, infantry and, to a lesser extent, artillery. What they don't ship him are the supply wagons necessary to feed and uh, uh, tra- you know feed those men, transport the ammunition. So. In one sense, Bragg is crippled. He can't even go 10 miles from his uh, his current railhead, the rail line which ended at Ringgold at, at the, the day after the battle. Uh, he can barely go the 10 miles from Ringgold to the battlefield and feed those men because he doesn't simply doesn't have enough wagons. And uh, that logistical problem will persist all the way through uh the, the, not just the Chickamauga campaign, but also on into the next, the Chattanooga campaign. So, uh, so his mobility is extremely limited, and the Union Army might have been defeated, but they were not destroyed. And on September 21st, there were still 30,000 federal soldiers ready to fight uh, for uh, the, the Rossville Gap in Missionary Ridge. So... I think that uh, a successful pursuit was highly unlikely for the, both of those reasons. So, you, so you've got an army that doesn't know quite where they are or where the enemy is. It, it's interesting how much both sides expect the battle to be renewed, or certainly the, the rebels don't even know the Union Army has retreated uh, when they wake up the next day. In the aftermath of the battle, both sides uh, shake up their commands uh, I thought we might look at the, the Union side for a moment. Uh, General Rosecrans is relieved of command uh, not long after the battle. And we are in a sort of historiographical moment where uh, U.S. Grant is coming under increasing uh, historical scrutiny for the accuracy of his memoirs and his willingness to write a story that makes him and his friends look good at the expense of those he doesn't care for, and Rosecrans is certainly someone he does not care for. Uh, did Rosecrans get a, a raw deal in being removed from command, in your view? Um, you know, in one sense, yes, I think he did. I think he was a better commander uh, than uh, 
history has portrayed him. Um, and at the same time, I think uh, this is, uh, you know, a, a classic case of, of shooting yourself in the foot as well. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact is that Rosecrans, uh, on September 20th, left the battlefield. Uh, he was chased off the battlefield basically by a Confederate assault, but uh, in within a couple of miles, he was no longer being pursued, and then he made a fateful decision. He decided to go all the way back to the city of Chattanooga, which was about eight miles away, instead of perhaps uh, trying to return to the Army or, at the very least, go to uh, uh, Rossville at the Rossville Gap, which I alluded to a minute ago. Mm-hmm. Had Rosecrans turned around and tried to rejoin the army, or even just gone to Rossville and uh, rejoined the army when when Thomas brought it back to Rossville on the night of September 20th, I think I think it's much more likely that he would have remained in command. So, in one sense, the the negative reputation. Uh, that Rosecrans earned by going all the way back to Chattanooga really is uh, is maybe the the deciding factor in what did him in. Um, but uh, that that said, I also think that he was a very capable commander. He was a much more capable commander than history has treated him uh, or has regarded him. And uh, I think had he been in command, been left in command. Uh, he would be certainly part of the uh, Atlanta campaign in 1864, and things might be very different in terms of Civil War history, or at least hey. in terms of his Civil War history. Now, in in one of your appendices, you look at the exchange of uh, correspondence and views between Rosecrans and uh, James A. Garfield, uh, at that time Chief of Staff, later, of course, uh, President, and you note that, that Rosecrans blamed Garfield in, in part, uh, and in, whereas Garfield was not really responsible for him getting uh, removed. I thought it was very interesting to see the the back and forth uh, uh, conflict within the Union ranks about this, and also to compare it to what's happening on the Confederate side, where you have a bunch of generals who have lost confidence in Braxton Bragg, the Army commander, and our uh, if there's ever a dysfunctional command structure, certainly it's Army of the Tennessee at that point. Army it, of Tennessee at that yeah, point. Yeah. Doesn't it seem ironic that the army that won the battle uh, goes through the exact same self-examination and recrimination process uh, as the army that lost the battle? That's a very, uh, uh, you know, the, that's typical for the Army of Tennessee, I feel. So they they uh, they struggle with that. When uh, I was talking with some uh, listeners over the past week, and they reminded me, years ago on the show, we always ended by asking people uh, to to take the Civil War time machine. Imagine you could travel back for 30 minutes uh, into the wartime era uh, uh, in complete safety and then return. Who would you want to talk to? Uh, Who would you want to see if you had that opportunity? Now, I may have asked you this question 10 years ago, but... Uh, uh, I believe years you have, ago, and, and honestly, I don't remember my answer at that time. <laughs> <laughs> well, 10 years have flown flown past, and you've done a lot more research. Uh, if you could go today uh, to talk to one one character from the wartime era for, for 
for 30 minutes, who would it be? George Thomas. We know, um, mm-hmm. we know the least about him, about what he's thinking and what, he's, uh, uh, what he wanted to do, simply because so many of his papers didn't survive. Um, and he was a taciturn, uh, inward-looking person anyway. He wasn't uh, an expressive or demonstrative uh, 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 personality. So uh, more and more I find myself coming to questions, what did George Thomas think about this? What did George Thomas think about that? And we're, uh, and even the Brian Wills, his most current and best biographer, I think, uh, mm-hmm. still struggles with... Uh, uh, you know, ha- having definitive answers to some of those questions. Did did his wife destroy his letters? Yes. Uh, that's, she that's destroyed what... his papers at his request when he died. Well, that that that'll show us the, the modern historians to mess with those guys. Uh, he he yes. anticipated what we would be doing. Um, and as we run short on time, one more question is: uh, What's next? Now, now you've got the Chickamauga trilogy complete uh well i have a book coming out uh next week actually uh uh, a smaller project it's uh called battle above the clouds uh it's an emerging civil war book on the uh, battle of lookout mountain if you're familiar with emerging civil war uh they've been working to put out a series of these um sort of introductory books to various battles um, and so I, I've written that, uh, and I will follow that up at some point with a, a book on Missionary Ridge. But I'm the kind of guy who likes to have a larger program in mind, and, uh, and so my next big objective is I want to go after the Atlantic campaign and do something in-depth and, and sort of big and rambling with the Atlantic campaign. So um, uh, I'm, I'm blanking on the name, the the. the Battle in the West. Was it Albert Castell? The uh, Decision in the West by Albert Castell. Decision Kestel. in the West. Yes. That's the one. Um, I mean, that's a big book. Uh, it is. Are you looking? You're looking at that size. Did, did, well, did he miss much? Um, I'm not sure he missed much. Uh, uh, I find that as I go along, um, uh, things interpretations change. Uh, it's a it's a book that that's now 30 years old, roughly. True. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and also I uh, I like the uh, the treatment of the Overland campaign, um, the four volumes, uh, uh, and now I, now it's my turn to blank on on the author's name of those the, four the, wonderful G- books. Gordon Ray. Gordon Ray. Yes, thank you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he he's got a new one coming out. Yes, uh, he has a Petersburg book, a fifth. That's right. And I would, uh, and I kind of am, am thinking I'd like to do something like that for uh, Atlanta from May to September, eighteen sixty-four. Well, that would be a, a a treat for us all. Something to look forward to, uh, listeners. If you've read the first two volumes of the trilogy, you're already you've already got the third one. If you haven't. Uh, it's not a bad one to start with because of the the research structure and learn about that, then go back and read the first two. Either way, you'll want to read The Chickamauga Campaign by David A. Powell, who's been our guest tonight. Dave, thanks for joining me on Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for having me, sir. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. 
Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Mm-hmm.